read Ephesians chapter 2 in just, just one verse this week. We're just going to be looking at one verse, and that one verse, I think, is chock full of meaning. Um, I think it carries a whole lot for us. And before we jump in, I just have a simple question. I'm, I'm wondering, have any of you ever just grown weary of, of the religious life? Have you ever grown weary of trying to be a good person? Have you ever grown weary of trying to always have to do what's right, to try to be the person that you think you should be instead of the person that you feel like you really are? Have you ever been there? Man, I've been there. And oftentimes we show up here into this place, and if we're not careful, we come in here and we think that, that we have to act like we have everything together. We have to come with a persona as though we're trying to earn or attain something from God. And if you've ever been in that position where you felt like God was this, this being that you had to approach and do all the right things in order to get him to be pleased with you and approve of you, I think tonight's text is going to speak to you uniquely. And I think that there's a lot of hope in what the Apostle Paul has to say to the Ephesian Christians in chapter 2, verse 6. So let's, let's read this verse together, and then let's dive in and unpack some of what Paul is trying to say in this one verse. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, he says, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Super simple, short verse. Let's read it again. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord out of Ephesians 2, verse 6. So as we jump into understanding this verse, it's important for us to look back and see where we've been in the book of Ephesians. So you remember when we started this series, we talked about this book to the Ephesians was really a letter to a group of Christians in the city of Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. It was written by a guy named Paul, and it was written about 2,000 years ago. And remember, we looked at both of these parties, Paul and the Ephesian Christians. They both had this amazing and kind of unexpected story of radical transformation in their life, all because of their encounter with the real, living, risen Lord Jesus Christ. And as Paul jumped into his letter, he started off writing to this group of Christians, a group of people that he knew well and loved well, and he started off by reminding them of who they were. And so he starts off by saying, you, let's praise God because you have received every spiritual blessing in Christ. And he goes through all of chapter one, naming off all these spiritual blessings that they had received because of Jesus. And then after naming all the things that they've already received, he prays this prayer for the Ephesians where he says, listen, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened because there is more. Even though you've been given so many blessings, there's more of God. There's more of God. There's more of God. And so the first chapter of Ephesians is this unbelievable, encouraging part of the letter where the Ephesian Christians are being encouraged in who they are and their identity in God. And then you hit chapter two, and this is where we were the week before Easter. And Dave did an amazing job of walking us through the beginning of chapter two, where, where Paul kind of turns this corner. He says, hey, this is who you are in chapter one, but you need to remember who you used to be. You remember where you came from. He says, because where you were was you used to be dead in sin, in transgression, and rebellion to God Almighty. You used to live as a slave to your own fleshly desires, just enslaved to doing whatever your flesh, your fleshly desires told you to do. You were enslaved to those things. And then at the very end, in, in verse 5, the verse that right before the one we're in tonight, he says, he says, but praise be to God who is rich in mercy, and him and he in his rich mercy raised us up to life in Jesus Christ. And so that's where we've been in Ephesians, which brings us to this verse 6 that we read tonight. 
where Paul says, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Now, we have to remember when we read this verse that this verse does not stand on an island. In other words, think about when you get a letter. When you get a letter in the mail from someone that you've been longing to hear from, or you get a long email from someone that you haven't heard from in a while, you don't just open up that email or rip open that letter and read like one sentence at a time and then set it aside and come back. And when you get a letter from someone that you've been longing to hear from, what do you do? You, you open that letter and you read every sentence, one sentence after the other, trying to get the complete thought of what that person was trying to express to you. And the reason this is important is because this verse that we're reading tonight, chapter two, verse six, it is directly connected to a sentence that Paul wrote about five sentences earlier in his letter to the Ephesians. You see, in chapter one, verse 20, Paul, in talking about Jesus, he talks about the power of God Almighty, and he says that he exerted this power, verse 20, when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Does that sound familiar? He says, listen, God and his power raised Jesus and he seated him in the heavenly realms. And then five sentences later, he looks at the Ephesian Christians and he says, God has raised you and seated you in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. It's this very intentional nod that Paul is saying, listen, what God has done in Jesus has now been conferred onto you, the followers of Jesus, those who have put their faith in Jesus. Now, I think we miss this verse sometimes for a couple of reasons. I think when we read chapter 1, verse 20, about God raising Jesus and God seating Jesus in the heavenly realms, we read that and it makes sense to us because we think, you know, in this very literal and observable and historical way, we can see that, that Jesus died on a cross and God literally raised him from the dead and then God literally raised him into the heavens. You're getting about that in Acts chapter 1 where Jesus, after he's been resurrected from the dead, is then lifted into the heavens where he is seated at the right hand of God. And so we read that about Jesus and we see this literal translation for what Paul is talking about. He's saying, hey, Jesus literally raised from the dead, Jesus literally raised into the heavens. But then we get to chapter two, verse six, where it says that God did the very same thing to us and we have a hard time understanding how to interpret that. And sometimes we go, oh, this must be talking about the future. This is what God is going to do when Jesus returns. He's going to raise us up and he's going to seat us in the heavenly realms. But the problem with that interpretation is that if you read it closely, it's very plain that Paul is talking about something that has already happened. He's not saying you will be raised up and you will be seated. He says, no, God has raised you up. He has done it and he has seated you past tense in the heavenly realms. This is not referring to a future reality, but is referring to a present reality that has already been accomplished for us. And so others go, okay, well, it's not future. Then maybe, maybe this is just a metaphorical thing, that with Jesus, it's literal. Jesus is literally raised, and Jesus is literally taken into heaven. For us, it must just be a metaphor, but I don't believe that Paul is using metaphor here. I believe that Paul is being very literal when he talks about us being raised, you'll remember, if you haven't listened to the podcast from before Easter, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. Because Dave talks about what it means for us to be dead in our sin. That you can be alive with a beating heart and breathing breath in your lungs, but be dead because of sin in your life. And what Paul is saying is that very literally, God has raised us from that death into life through Jesus Christ. And very literally, God has seated us in the heavenly realms He's saying very literally, 
That your primary existence is not one of flesh and blood that is tied to this physical earth, but your primary existence is your spiritual reality, and where you are seated is in the heavenly realms of Jesus. Now, we're going to unpack that some. That's our whole goal for tonight, because it's kind of a confusing concept. We're going to unpack what it means for us to be seated, and what it means for us to be seated in the heavenly realm. So let's start with this word, seated. What does it mean? What is Paul saying when he says that we have been seated in the heavenly realms? Well, to sit, we all know what it means to sit down. We all know what it means to be seated. I'm looking around the room. I think everyone in the room is seated right now. So we all know that what it means to be seated. There's something significant. I think being seated has two important implications when Paul says that we're seated in the heavenlies. The first implication is that of rest. You think about the difference in sitting down and standing. Right now, I'm standing and all of the weight of my body is being held up by my own two legs, by my strength. I am being supported by my effort by my strength right now. But when we sit down, all of our weight is suddenly being supported by that thing upon which we are seated. I think about this, this couch I have in my house in the living room, and, and it's this amazing sectional couch that kind of goes around. There's this huge ottoman that goes in front of it, and there is a seat in the corner of that couch. There is no more restful place that I can think of. It is the most coveted spot in my household that if we're watching a movie, everyone wants to be in the corner to kick back and put your feet up on the ottoman because it is so restful. All weight is taken off of my strength and is able to rest on that amazing, comfortable spot on my couch. So you see, being seated has this implication of resting. But there's another implication, I think, involved here in this word of being seated, of sitting down. And I think that implication is an implication of completeness. That something has been completed. Because we all know that sitting down is not really appropriate until the job is done. We have this phrase that we use when we talk about someone being lazy on the job. We say, oh, he's sitting down on the job. He's sitting down on the job. It's this idea that when there's work to be done, when there's a task to be accomplished, somebody is not taking it seriously and they're sitting down in the middle of it. They're sitting and resting preemptively. I see this uh, in my boys, uh, Torin and Elijah. They're age seven and five and they love, we play wiffle ball in our backyard and they love it. It's so much fun. The thing they both want to do more than anything is to be up to bat. They want to be the batter. And Elijah, my oldest son, he will go out into the field when he's not at bat, and he will try to field every ball that my son Torin hits to him. But Torin hasn't quite figured that out yet. And so when he's not batting, when he gets his last out, he drops the bat, he walks out between second and third base, and he just sits down in the grass. And he can't figure out why his older brother Elijah is just cranking the ball over his head every time. And he can't figure out why he can't seem to win a game of wiffle ball against his older brother. And I keep telling him, Torrent, you're sitting down before the job is done. You're sitting down before the game is over. There's still something to be done. You've got to stand up and play. We all know that rest, true rest, doesn't really come until the work is complete. We all long for rest, but we know that true rest doesn't come until work is complete. I don't know if you're like me, but man, if I start a project any kind of project, and I know I'm not going to be able to finish it, it drives me crazy. (laughs) So yesterday, my wife and I decided that we were going to work in our garden. We've got a whole half of our garden that we haven't done anything in yet this year, and it's getting kind of late, so we needed to get it weeded and everything planted. So we just had this brilliant idea. We're going to get everything done in one day. I'm going to go to Home Depot in the morning. I'm going to rent a tiller. I'm going to come home and till in the morning, and we're going to get all the grass that's growing out of there. We're going to get that out of there. We're going to go through and weed. I'm going to set up the pathways with the mulch on it. 
I'm going to put up the, the wooden trim around the outside to keep the mulch out. And then we're going to go in and we're going to plow our rows and we're going to put in the seeds and we're going to plant every single plant that we want to plant this year in our garden. Man, we are so ambitious. Oh yeah, and we have three kids. It was going to be amazing. We were going to get so much done yesterday. You already know where this is going. Needless to say, I get up, I go get the tiller, I start tilling. And by the lunchtime, I haven't even finished tilling the garden. And I'm like, oh man, how are we ever, this is so frustrating, but I was so driven. I was going to finish this. My wife says, Aaron, we need to go in and eat lunch. And I'm like, why do we got to eat lunch? The kids can fend for themselves. We've got to finish the project. She convinced me otherwise because she's a good mom. So I went inside, I, I ate my lunch, but was I resting? No, I'm like shoveling the heated up pizza down my throat so that I can get back out there and try to finish the project. Then I have to return the tiller to Home Depot. Then I get back out there and we start digging again. And I spent the rest of the afternoon trying to get the weeds around the edge taken out so that I could put the trim in to keep the mulch up out of the garden. And by four o'clock, I look at my watch and we had not planted a single thing in our garden. It drove me nuts. At that point, I looked at my wife and I was like, what's the point? Why do we even try? What are we doing? You know, I start losing my temper and losing my patience because I'm so frustrated at how long it's taking us. And the reason I get so frustrated is because I know I won't really be able to rest until we get that project finished. I don't, I, have you ever been there? You got something looming over you that you want to finish and you feel like your mind can't really be at ease until you get that task completed. You know, we know innately that work has to come before rest, that completeness has to come before rest. And yet what we see in Ephesians chapter two, verse six, is the complete opposite of that. It almost feels paradoxical to us in the way that we work, but this is the story that we see throughout the entire Bible. Ephesians 2, 6, it's this, this thing where Paul says, you have been seated, you have entered rest, but you have done none of the work. This is the biblical narrative. You go all the way back to Genesis. Genesis chapter one and two, where God is creating everything that we know that we have experienced. God is bringing that into being. It's this beautiful poetic expression of the way that God created the heavens and the earth. And he goes through and he calls every single thing into being as though they had always been. He creates them out of nothing in the animals and the plants and the sea and the ocean and the sky, everything. God creates it all. And on the sixth day, he gets to the pinnacle of his creation. And he creates man and woman, Adam and Eve, in his image, in the image of God, he created them at the height of his creation. There's this beautiful place in Genesis chapter two, verse two, where it reads like this, by the seventh day, God had completed the work he had been doing. And so on the seventh day, he rested from all of his work. And so we see God laboring and working to bring about creation. And then upon its completion, he's satisfied and he rests. But here's why this is significant for us. Adam and Eve, the very first of all the human race, look at when they were created. At the end of the sixth day, this means that Adam and Eve's very first day of existence on the planet was a day of rest. God slaves over creation, brings it into being, and then he decides to rest from the work that he has completed, and he looks at Adam and Eve who have literally done absolutely nothing, and he says, I want you to rest with me. You are invited into the rest from the work that I have completed. They've done nothing. They've done nothing and yet they're invited into rest. 
We continue to see this play out throughout Scripture. I believe creation was just a picture that was pointing to the work of Jesus at the cross, ultimately. In John chapter 19, we find Jesus hanging on the cross, and he looks down at those that are crucifying him. He looks at a world that is full of pain and sin and suffering and sorrow and shame, and he says three simple words. He says, it is finished. It's complete. I've done it. Jesus takes all of the things that are wrong with our world, all the things that deserve punishment, that deserve justice, he takes them on his own innocent shoulders. He goes into a tomb and is dead, and on the third day he rises back to life, and he looks at us, the rest of creation, and he says, the rest is now available for you. Now you can rest because it's finished. I've completed it. And so what Paul is saying in chapter two, verse six, is that, listen, you have been seated. You have entered into a place of complete rest, but not because you've done the work, not because you've completed anything, but because Jesus has completed the work for you and he invites you in to enjoy the rest that truly only he deserves. This is amazing news. It's such good news. It is great news, but I'll tell you, it is some of the hardest news for us to sometimes receive and to accept. Because in the world of our worth, in the world, our worth is somehow connected to the things that we do and perform and achieve. We begin to think that our identity is, is connected to the things that we do, that we have to perform in order to gain our worth. And that the thing is, the harder we work, the more we feel like we have to work. And so it feels like we never truly get to rest. It's like we're on a hamster wheel where we're chasing down our identity and our worth and we think, man, when I finally get there, then I can rest, then I can be satisfied, but we never actually get to attain the thing that we're chasing after. And the world looks, we all look at one another by the world standards and we ascribe worth to one another based on our achievement and our performance, don't we? We see this in all different arenas of life. I think about the academic world, for example. You know, we say that in life, when we are born, we assume that we all start from the same place and that our goal is to somehow gain worth for ourselves throughout life. And so in the academic world, we say, hey, those who can achieve, those who can perform in school and make the grade, who can graduate and go on to college and then graduate from college, maybe get a master's, maybe get a PhD, well, those people are attaining worth for their life. They are achieving something. And we would give positive value to their life. And as amazing as those things are, we have to think about what that says about the person who never graduates high school, who struggles to even get a GED, that we're saying, listen, your worth, your value is somehow less than the one who achieved, the one who attained. It's not just an education, though. We do this in almost every arena of life, where we think that somehow our work and our achievement somehow accomplishes something for us. And so we keep chasing that thing, but it feels like we never quite get to take hold of it. It's because the reality is our worth, our identity, they're not connected to our achievement. They're not connected to our performance. And we're never gonna get to rest as long as we think that they are. It's not just in the world out there though. So I think sometimes spiritually we end up thinking the same thing. We think spiritually that if we can attain certain things, well then we can find freedom. And it's not just in Christianity. I think the world looks at religion and thinks that religion is a set of things that you do in order to gain peace for your soul. 
And so you look at the practices of Buddhism and what those who practice Buddhism would espouse, they would say, listen, you can attain escape from this endless cycle of life and death and rebirth, but you have to be the one to relieve yourself of all the desires in your mind. You have to empty your mind. You have to meditate until you can find this inner peace, and then you can escape this cycle that you're living into. It's on your shoulders to attain it. Or you take a look at, at Islam. In Islam, the belief is simply this. If you are a Muslim, then you have to jump through every hoop that Allah would have you perform. If you want to be in good standing with Allah, well, then, man, you better get it right. You better pray all the prayers that you're required to pray. You better do all the fasts that you're required to do. You have to do all the things that Allah wants you to do if you want to know that you stand in good, in good standing with Allah. It is a performance-based thing that if you want to rest, well, man, you better achieve. And oftentimes, we smuggle that same kind of thinking into Christianity. We think, man, if I want God to be pleased with me, if I want God to love me, if I want to know that I'm saved, well, I've got to do all the right things. I've got to show up at church at all the right times. I've got to read all the right books. I've got to stay away from all the bad sins. I've got to make all the right choices. I have to somehow attain or achieve or earn in order for God to be pleased with me. And when I feel that he's pleased with me, then I'll be able to rest. But you see, this is completely backwards from what the biblical story would tell us. It's completely backward from what Paul is saying in chapter 2, verse 6. Jesus comes to us and Jesus does all the hard work. Jesus pays all the price. And Jesus extends to us this offer of rest, that we can rest in our identity as sons and daughters of God. And oftentimes, Jesus shows up and he tries to give it to us. But we can't accept it because we're too busy trying to earn it on our own. But the reality is, it is a free and beautiful gift that he extends to you. Now here's the rub, and this is why I think sometimes it's so hard, is that if, if we're good at this life, if we're high achievers and we're good performers and we know how to do all the right things and to attain status for ourselves, well then accepting this free gift from Jesus is pretty humbling. I, I grew up going to church, I grew up knowing all the right ways to live and I thought that was what made me good with God. And I learned how to follow all the rules. And I remember the first time somebody looked at me and called me a self-righteous fill-in-the-blank because of the way that I was living. I thought I was better than everyone else. You see, if we fall into this trap of thinking that we have to earn something from God and we're good at performing and earning, what it begins to breed is pride and self-righteousness in our hearts, the very things that God abhors the most. And so if we want to accept the gift of grace, those of us who are high achievers, we've got to be careful. We've got to humble ourselves and admit, I cannot do this on my own. I think this is why Jesus spent so much time around those who are down and out and the outcasts. If you've ever talked to someone who has been addicted to anything or someone who has battled mental illness, then you'll know, they'll tell you, they have to be, the first thing they have to do is accept, this is part of who I am. I'm powerless. The very first step on the road to recovery and addiction is admitting that you are powerless over your addiction. And the very first step in accepting the gift of grace that God wants to give us is admitting I am powerless over the sin that is at work in my life. There's nothing that I can do to attain rest for myself, but it is a free gift that Jesus longs to hand out to us. For those 
who achieve in life, the gospel of Jesus is humbling. But for man, for those who struggle to fight their way through life, the gospel of Jesus feels exalting and relieving. It is good news. This is the gospel of Jesus. That when we had done nothing, that when we were dead in our transgressions, Jesus came to us. He offered us life. And when we put our faith in him, he seats us in the heavenly realm so that we can rest in the completed work of Jesus. Now, some would listen to this and go, Aaron, aren't you just espousing laziness? You're just saying that we don't have to do anything for God, and that's not what I'm saying at all. In fact, next week, you're going to see quite the contrary. The point in this passage is where we begin the work. Jesus would put it this way in John chapter 15. He'd say, listen, if you want to bear fruit, then remain in me. He says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Abide in me, and you will bear much fruit. But man, apart from me, you can do nothing. And if you want to bear fruit, abide in me. The invitation is to rest in Jesus. There's this really great book that's kind of a, 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 almost a commentary on the book of Ephesians. It's really small. It's a very simple read by a, an amazing missionary who lived in the early 20th century named Watchman Nee. He was a, a Chinese missionary who saw thousands of people come to Christ through underground church movements. And um, I love the way that he describes this. And this will... This is kind of sums up this idea of being seated. This is the way he says it. He says, the Christian life from start to finish is based upon this principle of utter dependence upon the Lord Jesus. There is no limit to the grace God is willing to bestow upon us. He will give us everything, but we can receive none of it except as we rest in him. Sitting is an attitude of rest. Something has been finished, work stops, and we sit. It is paradoxical, but it is true that we only advance in the Christian life as we learn, first of all, to sit down. The invitation is to sit and to rest. So Paul says, you followers of Jesus, you have been seated in the heavenly realms. Now, so let's keep going. What does that mean? We've been seated so we can rest, but what does it mean that we're in the heavenly realms? Man, we could spend a lot of time unpacking that. We don't have enough time tonight. So I'm going to give you two simple things that I think happen when we begin to believe that our actual existence is in a different plane than that of this mortal earth, that we've been seated in the heavenly realms. There's two changes that take place in our lives. The first change is a change of perspective, and the second change is a change of power. The change of perspective what I mean is this, is that we can find ourselves in this world when all hell seems to be breaking loose around us, suddenly we find ourselves at peace with the things that are happening. This is what Dave preached on when we were here together for Easter, that Jesus said, hey, listen, trouble is coming, things are going to get difficult, but I've overcome the world and you can have peace. I've seen this happen in people's lives. I had two very close friends, they were a husband and wife, married couple in 2008, they found out they were pregnant with their first child, and they were so excited. Early on, their excitement would begin to wane as they went in for their first checkup with an ultrasound, and the doctors had a lot of concern about the developing fetus in her body. They said, listen, there's some things that aren't developing quite right, and chances are you will not carry this baby to full term. And they offered her some alternatives to carrying the baby full term. And she said, no, this is our baby. We believe we want to see this baby grow and bring him into life. And so they decided that instead of terminating the pregnancy, they, they would surround themselves with prayerful people. They started sending out messages because they believed in the power of God to heal their baby and grow their baby, baby healthily. 
And over the next nine months, they would go in for checkup after checkup after checkup where they would find out that as the baby was developing, there was a hole in his heart that as the baby was developing, one lung wasn't developing properly, that as the baby boy was growing, that his brain was not developing quite right. And the doctors weren't sure if they were going to be able to save him. In fact, they never really thought she would carry the baby full term, but she did. People were praying. And so when the time came for her to deliver their baby boy, they hired a photographer to be there in the delivery room because they weren't sure what was going to happen, but they wanted to remember every moment. And so she delivered their baby boy that day. And he was born, and he was alive. And they held him in their hands. Mother and father both got to hold him. And they watched him for about five minutes as he fought for life. And then they watched him as the life left his little body. And it was a heartbreaking moment. They had prayed and they had prayed and they had prayed. And anyone from the outside looking in would have said, oh, they're going to lose their faith. They trusted in God and God did not come through for them. But I'll tell you one of the most amazing and powerful images that's burned into my brain that I'll never forget. About four days later, they had a memorial funeral for their little boy. And they invited people to come. And I remember seeing this picture of my friends, husband and wife, mother and father, sitting on the front row in this memorial service with their hands raised as they just worshiped and sang praise to God Almighty, the God who had given them their son and the God who had taken their son away. How in the world do you make sense of that? How can someone experience that kind of loss, that kind of grief, that kind of sorrow, and yet still worship God with hope and praise? It's because they realize that they've been seated in the heavenly realms, that the realities of this life are temporary. Paul would say it this way in another place. He'd say, listen, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, because what is seen is temporary. But we long for the eternal, because we are seated in the heavenly realms. It's this massive perspective change, where life can throw at you whatever it wants, but you can walk through it with hope and with joy and with peace, because of what Christ has accomplished, because he has invited you to rest. So that's a change of perspective that's incredible. This realizing you're seated in the heavenlies also gives you this change of power. You begin to realize that the thing that you used to always try to do on your own now no longer rests on your shoulders. So before we realize that we're seated, that Christ has accomplished everything, we come to Christ and we say, okay, I'm going to try to be good. I'm going to try to do all the things that I should. You've told me to be patient. You've told me to be kind. You've told me to be gentle. You've told me not to gossip. You've told me to forgive. You've told me not to be resentful. All right, I'm going to do all of these things. I'm going to do them the best that I can. But no matter how hard we try, we find ourselves doing the opposite of the things that we want to do. Have you ever been there before? But what happens when we realize we're seated in the heavenly realms is suddenly there's this change of power. No longer is the change that I'm after, no longer is it dependent upon my own willpower and my own self-control. Because now there's this new power that is at work in me. Now the very power of heaven is working through me to make me more of what God intended me to be. I've seen this in my own life. You can talk to my wife about this sometime. I am not a patient man. I've had a short temper my whole life. When I was in high school, I used to break things. Every time I watched the University of Tennessee lose a football game, I broke a lot of things because I watched them lose a lot. But I had the shortest temper. I would lose my temper with inanimate objects. If I couldn't get my CD player to work properly, I would yell at it in the car. Like, it's idiotic now that I look back at it. My wife, when we first got married, I would lose my temper at an inanimate object, and she'd be like, what is wrong with you? 
You're like the, one of the nicest people I know and you're yelling at your CD player in the car. This is a true story. Like, but I just had no patience. And she would tell me that I needed to be patient and that would make me more mad and I'd lose my patience even more. And then this amazing thing happened. I believe it happened because of an encounter with Jesus. Several years into our marriage, I remember one day my wife said she looked out the window and she saw me working on our lawnmower, attempting to take it apart to try to fix it. And she went, oh no, like this is going to be disastrous because one, there's no way he's going to be able to fix that lawnmower. And two, he's going to get so ticked off and she kind of braced herself for me to lose my temper. And she, she, she asked herself, she said, I'm going to time this and see how long he lasts before he loses his temper. And 30 minutes went by. And she looked out the window, and I'm still out there tinkering with the lawnmower. Another 30 minutes went by. I'm not a very good mechanic. And I'm standing back, I'm looking at the lawnmower, and, but I'm not getting mad. I couldn't fix it. A dumb lawnmower wouldn't get fixed, you know? So finally, she sees me out there putting the thing back together, and I came inside, and she's flabbergasted. And she said, Aaron, I've, Jesus is doing something in you. I'm like, what are you talking about? She said, you didn't lose your temper. I was like, you're right, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't get angry. Like I was so excited. I didn't even realize it was happening in me. But the Holy Spirit who lives in me was working by the power of heaven to bring about a change in my heart to where now I find myself being more patient. I'm able to be more gentle with my wife and this is not because of my work, because I've tried harder. It is simply because of the goodness of Jesus and the completeness of what he's accomplished and the power of heaven working through me. This is the power of change. It is not by our power that we change ourselves, and it is not by our power that we change other people. It is not by our power that we change the world around us. How many of you have tried so hard to work for change in the world only to find yourself being frustrated? You see, when you come to realize you've been seated in the heavenly realms, you're able to let go completely of trying to be the one that has to fix everything and to realize it is only by the power of heaven that anything will be changed. And this will change the way you pray. I remember like two and a half weeks ago, two, three weeks ago, I was at prayer gathering. And I'm praying for a woman to be healed. There was a bunch of us praying for her. And I kept going, God, I don't know what you want me to do. I've got no, no power in these hands. There's nothing that I can do myself to bring healing upon her. And I kept asking God, like, God, how, how do I pray? How do I convince you that you should heal her? And God just kept giving me the same image in my mind. The image was of this coil of wire. And I'm like, God, why are you showing me this weird image of a coil of wire right now while I'm trying to pray for this woman? And so I started asking him what it was supposed to mean. And then I realized that I'd seen it before. He said, listen, this is, this is the same kind of coil of wire that you would see on the back of an electrician's truck when they show up at a new home to run wire through their home to bring power into it. Only this coil of wire was not on the back of a truck. It was, it was in the heavens. And it was coming unraveled, it was being poured down, but it never stopped, it just kept going, kept going, this infinite source of power. And God said, Aaron, you don't have to fix her, Aaron. It is not up to your power. Trust me, let me do it. Trust in my ability and trust in my will because I know what I'm doing. This power change happens. When we begin to realize it isn't up to, uh, up to us, it is not up to our power to make things happen. But when we realize we've been seated quite literally in the heavenly realms, now the power of heaven is coursing through our bodies. Do you know that, brothers and sisters in Jesus? Those of you who have put your faith in Christ, you have the very power of heaven working in your heart, working through your body to bring change to your body, to bring change to those around you. This is part of the good news. You have been seated 
on the completeness of Jesus, you get to rest and you're in the heavenly realms, this change of perspective it will give you and the change of power at work in your life. Now here's one of the frustrating things about this particular sermon. That oftentimes when we hear a sermon, what we look for at the end is the, okay, now what do we do? But the frustrating thing with this sermon is that there's nothing for you to do. There's nothing for you to do. It's funny that that's frustrating. That should be good news for us, but it's not. It feels so frustrating because we want to do something. But here's the reality. There's nothing for you to do except to believe in the completed work of Jesus Christ and what he holds out to you. For those of you who are Christians, who've given your life to Jesus, who are struggling to believe that God is pleased with you, that he loves you, and that you are in good standing with him, the only thing you do is believe and ask Jesus to help you believe. For those of you who who are not Christians, those who have not decided to follow Jesus, you don't have to do anything except believe. Believe in what Jesus wants to do in you. So here's how we're going to end our time together this morning. And this is kind of a different uh, way to end a sermon. I don't usually end sermons this way, but I really believe that the only way you're going to experience the rest that Jesus has for you is by believing in the completeness of the work that he has done for you. And I think the only way we begin to believe is when we encounter Jesus in a very real and personal way. I cannot make that happen for you. Jesus alone is the one that shows up. He's the one that ministers to us and encounters us. And so I'm gonna just pray. I'm gonna pray for us that we believe as followers of Jesus that when we're gathered in his name, he's here in our midst. He's here, do you know that? Do you know that God is in our midst? through his Holy Spirit, that Jesus is here with us. And so I'm gonna pray, and then we're just gonna have a a moment of silence. And it'll probably be uncomfortable for a little bit, and that's okay, I just encourage you to embrace the awkwardness, embrace the discomfort. I'm gonna pray, and I wanna encourage you to get comfortable, close your eyes if you need to. You can hold your hands. This is one of the things we do as Christians. Sometimes we put our hands out in front of us, showing Jesus that we're willing to receive whatever it is that he wants to give us. I'm gonna pray, and I'm just gonna ask Jesus and his faithfulness to reveal himself to us in this moment that he would encounter each of you in the place that you need to encounter him so that you can experience the rest that he has for you. So I'll pray, we'll be silent, and then I'll pray for us again. God, we we come to you right now um, fully aware that there's nothing we can do. Lord, we we struggle to receive that as good news because we live in a culture that tells us we need to do, that we need to perform. Lord, we come tonight Jesus, I ask that you would come into our midst. Through your Holy Spirit, would you encounter each of us in the way that we need to be encountered? Would you bring your rest to us? For those who are weary, for those who are burdened, would you show them what it means for you to encounter them? Would you show them what it means when you tell us that your yoke is easy, your burden is light, and that if we come to you, you give us rest for our souls. Come, Lord, come. Lord, I thank you for being here in our midst, for being amongst us. Just keep hearing uh, the psalm where you tell us to be still and know that I am God. Lord, would you still our hearts? Would you help us to be still and to know you are God, you are able, you've completed the work, and you invite us into rest.
Lord, I pray that you would bring certainty to us tonight, that when we put our faith in you, and that is enough, that your work is sufficient for us. Help us to believe that. Help us to embrace it, even though it feels humbling and humiliating sometimes to say that we can't do it. Help us to embrace the good news that you've done it for us. praise you, Lord. Thank you for being at work in our midst. I pray that you would continue to minister to us. As we move into a time of communion with you, would you remind us of the complete work that you've done at the cross and the empty tomb? Would you minister to us as we worship? Would you minister to us as we pray? We love you, Lord. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.